Welcome to Social Work Stories, a podcast exploring social work practice through stories and critical reflection. This podcast is recorded on Aboriginal country, which was never ceded. We acknowledge the traditional custodians and cultural knowledge holders of these lands and pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. We offer a warm welcome to any Indigenous listeners who are part of our podcast community around the world. If you have thoughts or feedback for our team, or just want to find our whole back catalogue of episodes, check out our website, socialworkstories.com. But for now, on with the episode. Welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. My name's Liz Murphy, and I'm joined here by my friend, Dr. Mim Fox. Hello, Mim. Hi, Liz. Hi, everyone. How are you doing, Liz? I'm excited about just sharing space again with you and Justin, our listeners. I know. It's good, isn't it? We're actually recording from our campus this evening, we which we don't often record from this space. So it's actually really nice to feel a bit connected to both practice and education, I think, while we record. And it feels like the complete opposite to when we were in COVID, like when we had to do it remotely. Now I feel like if I get any closer to you <laughs> with sharing this microphone, I'm going to fog up your glasses. It's very, it's very intimate. I know, I know. But, you know, happy to be intimate with you, Liz, in the pod space. Absolutely fine. And this is a great episode. I love this. Yeah. So we don't often get stories from practitioners working in child protection in that really difficult child welfare wellbeing space. Well, I think it's a slightly different tribe that we're looking at. And this takes me right back to antenatal days. Yeah. When I would love, love, love it when a woman I was working with would be eligible to get into an early intervention program. That's what we're talking about here, Mim. We're talking about the early intervention programs. And this social worker tells us a fabulous story about this woman. I'm not going to give anything away. But what she also does is she links how this early intervention program differs from the child protection space. This is getting in and working with families before they reach a point that's more reactive in terms of the social work intervention. I love it because that's the sort of work that we sometimes find ourselves talking a little bit much about, but this is actually a prelude to that, right? And she does a beautiful job at really clearly stepping out the differences. In fact, Mim, I think we've got ourselves in a hammock piece here. Yeah, well, the practitioner tells it all and becomes really beautifully reflective, actually, as well, about that internal process and internal monologue that she's having. I can't wait to have that conversation with you, Liz. Me too, because she poses questions Well, actually, the client posed the question to kick it off. That's right. And then it started this social worker down a rabbit hole of reflection that then got me down in the rabbit hole. Did it get you down in the rabbit hole? I reckon we take our listeners down the rabbit hole with us when we come back. Okay. Can't wait. I work for a service that delivers the targeted earlier intervention program, which is funded by the New South Wales Department of Communities and Justice. The targeted earlier intervention program aims to support people to address problems before they escalate. So 
um, we're aiming that ultimately we'll be able to divert children from the statutory child protection system. So they won't need to, so things won't get to the point where they're needing um, statutory child protection intervention, where we're hopefully avoiding you know, reports needing to be made, removals needing to be made, etc. At the same time, we're also not just wanting to prevent, but actually to strengthen. So we're wanting to support parents to develop skills and capacity to help them be great parents and to address things that are stopping them from enjoying their lives with their kids as well. So it's strengths-based and person-centric and looking at families holistically, helping families to work on their strengths to meet whatever challenges they're experiencing. The Targeted Early Intervention Program believes in the capability of people and aims to help people to become more independent, autonomous, and to live according to their values rather than punishing them for whatever shortfalls they may perceived to have. So it's a flexible program. So it's funded by the Department of Communities and Justice and partners with local service providers who are working in local communities and can focus on the specific needs of each community rather than using the same program everywhere. So we received a referral for a woman who I'll call Louise and her family. And when we first received this referral, it really sounded like a classic or textbook early intervention case Louise was from another country. She was married to an Australian man and they had two young children, two toddlers. And we were told they had recently moved to our area. Louise was socially isolated and she wanted to join some play groups. So that sounded like, yeah, a really good fit for our service. And off I went with a colleague to meet her for the first time. And I remember Um, meeting Louise, meeting her at her front door. She opened the door to us and she was on crutches, which was not what I'd expected, but that's okay. She took us inside and we started to chat about her situation and her family. And very quickly, she explained to us that actually she had a lifelong physical disability, which was why she was using the crutches. And that this disability had quite a significant impact on her day-to-day life, including an impact upon her parenting because as as a result of this disability, she found it physically hard and in some cases impossible to do a lot of tasks that were required in parenting. So we were a bit baffled and I'm still a bit baffled as to why the referrer didn't think to mention Louise's disability in the referral because it was having a significant impact on her parenting. So one of the first things that we did um, after that first visit was to start to help Louise to access a service that could help her with some of the tasks in her home. On the second visit, we started to find out some more about some of the complexity of Louise's situation. Louise had a lot of concerns, it turned out, regarding her husband's use of alcohol. She explained that he drank frequently and in the past he'd sometimes been violent and aggressive after drinking. He denied having any problems with alcohol, but Louise had also become aware that he wasn't being honest with her about how often he was drinking, and he was also hiding some of the consequences that he had experienced as a result of his drinking. And Louise was quite worried about her children being exposed to their father's variable behaviour after he had been drinking. So it was one of those situations, as so often happens, where the more we worked with Louise, the more she opened up and the more complicated we found out her situation was, even though it looked so neat and straightforward at the beginning. At the same time, though, Louise was really proactive. So 
even though she'd been referred to us, part of the referral was asking for us to link her with playgroups. But actually, by the time we met her, she'd already found a playgroup. So she started going off to that. And she also found for herself a support group that was for family members of people who abused alcohol. And she started going to that. And as we worked with her, when I gave her information about different services that might be helpful for her, she connected with them quite quickly. And so in many ways, it was was like she was the dream client. She was so proactive, really engaged and really keen to connect with help. And there were some really exciting moments in our work together. So for example, I remember the moment when we found out that we had together been successful in advocating for a large debt that she had to be written off. And I remember sitting with Louise as she was reading the letter about this and she was just so taken aback and so overwhelmed by the news that she handed, to, handed the letter to me and I actually had to reread it for her and assure her that, yes, the letter really did say that these fines that she'd had had been cancelled and she didn't have to pay the money anymore. And then I remember seeing that moment when her, all of her, her doubts and shocks sort of suddenly evaporated and suddenly it gave way to delight. And she turned to me and said, can I give you a hug? Is that allowed? And even her children, her two toddlers, were such a delight as well. I remember watching them in their home, seeing them playing together and just being so impressed at how these really, really small children were sharing and taking turns just so naturally together. So in many ways, it seemed like a really happy family and things were going really, really well. But unfortunately, things didn't go so well with Louise's husband. Um, He continued drinking and he became increasingly violent towards Louise. And from time to time, he would start to seek help regarding his alcohol use. He'd do that for a little while and then he'd stop. Um, But as far as his treatment of Louise, his mistreatment of Louise, he actually completely refused to address that at all. And unfortunately, the violence escalated to a point where Louise decided that she actually needed to get the police involved And eventually she decided that she needed to leave her husband. And understandably, this was really heartbreaking for her. And for me, the moment that really stays with me from my time working with Louise was a time when we were sitting together at the police station. We'd gone there so that she could speak with a police officer about the domestic violence. So we were in the waiting area waiting for this to happen. And Louise just turned and looked me in the face and said, do you ever see good endings? And I was just so thrown by that question. And I remember thinking, do I? Do I see good endings? And, and what does that even mean? Um, in many ways, in that moment, that question just floored me. And I still, I think that to some extent it, it still does. Because, of course, on the one hand, there's the obvious question um, of, you know, for all of our efforts, do we see good results? Are positive changes possible? Do they happen? Is there a point to our work? But for me, the bigger question became, what actually is a good ending and who gets to decide or declare or say whether or not, yeah, a particular ending is good? Because in Louise's case, as time went on, uh, the ending to our work together was that she did leave her husband and it did happen safely. And she and her children were able to move back to her home country And we were even able to get another local service to pay for the cost of the flights, which was pretty amazing. So she went back safely to her home country. And then when she was there, she was able to live close to her family and friends who were really supportive. And that, you know, happened from the outset as soon as she got back. And a short time after she'd 
got home, as she was settling in, um, she wrote to tell me that it was really, really great to be surrounded by the support of her family and she could see that her children were thriving there with all of the love and care and safety that they were now enjoying. And she said that she could see that moving back there had really been the right decision. So from the point of view of our work, in many ways, it seemed like such a good ending. But over the time that I'd worked together with Louise, I'd come to know her fairly well and I knew that from her point of view, this wasn't actually what she meant by a good ending. For Louise, a good and happy ending would have been to live in a safe and loving relationship with her husband and to raise their children together. And that's not the ending that happened. The ending that she got did have many positives, but from her point of view, I know that it was definitely a very, very, very second-rate ending. So in that moment when Louise asked her question and in the many times when, since then when I've remembered it, it's made me think of a number of different things. It's reminded me of several things, like particularly that it's really important to watch for how clients view and value their circumstances and achievements um, and that it's really important for me to try and be thoughtful in how I talk to clients about my enthusiasm for their moments of success, as it were. Because I think, you know, we do like to acknowledge and celebrate our clients' strengths and achievements. You know, after all, we work from a strengths perspective. So that's something that is really important to us as workers. But I also think that maybe sometimes as workers, we can be inclined to talk about small wins as really big wins. And maybe maybe our clients don't always share our perspective on that or our view on that. And maybe sometimes when we get all excited about something that they actually think is, you know, at most second rate, then maybe in that moment, um, as we're so excited and wanting them to be excited too, maybe there'd be times when they're actually feeling unheard or dismissed or unseen amidst all of our excitement. And the, and there's several other things as well that the question has also uh, raised, which I guess I won't expand on a lot, but just a few things that it's made me think about, which is, you know, has, for example, the media and the entertainment industry actually done us, done our society a bit of a disservice by over-glorifying the idyllic good or happy ending? Is it wise to constantly feed people motivational messages that tell them they can achieve whatever they want if they only set their mind to it? How can we teach children to strive and do their best, but also to be content? And is social work about good or happy endings or not? So being involved in an early intervention space is multiple things at once. It's really exciting because you get to, you you can think about all of the things that you're hopefully preventing, but at the same time, it's a bit of a mystery because you'll never see those things you're preventing, which is the nature of the beast, but is a very, is a very good thing. But we can, um, sometimes you can speculate about what may have happened if a family didn't get support. So in Louise's case, for example, I think it would be reasonable to speculate that without intervention and supports, the violence that she was experiencing could well have escalated to a point where child protection intervention would have been necessary. 
I think one thing in Louise's case and and that we quite commonly see is that often women don't necessarily identify violence as violence until it escalates to a very high point. Whereas for someone such as Louise, when when they're engaged in a service such as ours, sometimes that can help them to be to have access to information and supports and other perspectives that help them to identify risks and violence at an earlier stage. And I think that certainly did happen in in Louise's case. So she was able to make some choices, choices that enabled her to then leave safely. There certainly had been significant violence that had occurred and I don't want to minimise the significance of that and the impact that it had already had on her family. But if she hadn't been connected with supports, I think it is quite possible that it would have increased to a, a higher level and that may have made it a lot harder for her to leave safely. And of course, there would have been the additional traumas and challenges that would have ensued from from the violence that did occur there. I think also for someone like Louise, who was a really, she did really engage well with services and really proactive in doing that. And so an early intervention service is also really fabulous for someone like her because she was able to build on her strengths so quickly. She it, it helped her to link with other services, to connect with supports that really helped her to thrive and so gave her greater and quicker access to contexts that would really help her. And, of course, another thing that early intervention services and many social work services, for that matter, can also do is, is simply linking people with other services that they may not know about. So, for example, I mentioned that we were able to get this amazing funding for Louise and her children to travel to her home country. And that was because we knew that service and had a relationship with them to approach them for that. And that was really good and really helpful for Louise and is something that she quite likely would not have known to be able to access. There's lots of things I really like about working in early intervention. I think one is that it is really hopeful. We come in with a strengths perspective. We see client strengths and because we're not statutory child protection, but we're a supportive service. In general, clients are pleased to work with us and where our work is generally seen from both parties to be very positive, where we're coming in thinking we're going to help build these strengths. The client is coming in thinking these people are going to support me. And so from the outset, it has a quite a positive trajectory and that's a delight to work with. Another thing that I really like about early intervention work is the variety of work that we get to do and the way that that can complement the, the way the different kinds of work can complement each other. So in our context, for example, I've described casework that I did with Louise, but we also run a range of group programs. We run programs for parents, programs for children, programs for parents and children together. And so it's quite common for a family to be accessing several aspects of our service all at once. They might be seeing a caseworker coming along to a play group. Um, Maybe the parent might come to a parenting group at some point. When the children are a bit older, they might come to an after-school children's group. And so there's lots of different ways in which you can be having input into a family and they can be accessing support. And those things can complement each other really nicely. So I can think of times where we've had a caseworker who's you know, doing one-on-one visits in the home and trying to provide some support around behavior management. 
And then the child, the parent and child go to a play group and the play group workers can see the behavior in action and support the parent as they try to apply strategies. And maybe the parent might come to a parenting group as well and learn sort of in a formal setting some different strategies and those things can all work together really well. So it's kind of win-win. As a worker, it's really exciting to get to do a variety of work, um, makes the work very interesting, but I can also see how the variety of the service is really, really beneficial for a client as well. Okay, let's do first reactions. I love doing first reactions. Yeah. My first reaction, if I may. Yeah. The referral process. Now, I loved that she mentioned the fact that the the client Louise actually had a mobility issue. That's that right. Was overlooked in the referral, but then I thought to myself, but no, there's no such thing as a perfect referral because you can think you've got the perfect referral, think I know exactly what I'm going to be walking into here, this sounds familiar, yeah. she meets all our criteria. No, men, they don't exist. No, of course they don't exist. People are far too complex for that. And also this idea that someone, that an individual is telling their entire story to the referrer and therefore that is going to be translated verbatim onto a referral form is just a fantasy, Liz. And, you know, when I think about contemporary times, yeah, I don't know about where you used to work, but a lot of our referral is done via the phone. Yeah. So there's no eyeballing going on. And how much do we... I mean, I love the fact that this is a home-based service and yeah. they're going into the home, they're working with the person in the in third dimension. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right? Or in face-to-face. So, yeah. yeah. So that was my, my first reaction. I had to have a chuckle at yeah, the referral. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I love as well how that didn't determine what intervention then came afterwards, right? That the social worker was just able to identify that, able to have a moment of reality check, and then just keep going. Yeah? It, it just... It didn't... It didn't adjust, she didn't have to adjust. No. And in fact, this represented to me a true partnership. Yeah. I know she talked about this being a client that was incredibly proactive and ran with a lot of the suggestions. Yeah. Um, but I think it's one of those examples of a great fit as well. Mm, completely, completely. And it's, you know, we can fall into that trap of thinking the perfect referral, the perfect client, right? But I do think dynamics play such an enormous role in making um, success of a therapeutic space, mm. you know. And timing too mm. and and referring to the right services and them having the capacity. I mean, I've never in my life heard of a service that actually paid for flights back home. Well, mostly there's mostly you're getting no's when it comes to capacity or you're constantly met by the limitations of funding that services have. Uh, I think we're really used to that as practitioners, but um, I love that there was actually some space there to provide something for this client. And I also thought, I can imagine being this social worker, kicking all these goals with Louise, things working out, services coming on board, Louise being proactive, taking on suggestions. And then here they are sitting in the police station and Louise looks over and says, do you ever experience a happy oh, ending? That's right. What a question from your client, right? Like, in full knowledge that they are not the happy ending, asking you, do you ever experience one? I mean, that that is a moment. That's a practice moment, right? 
And what I loved about this story is that the social worker then allowed that to open the door for a reflective cycle for herself. I'm going right into the supervision space. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wouldn't she would have it? taken that immediately in. Oh. And, you know, the number of questions that that then spun off for her, right? There was all that question about, is there ever a happy ending? What does a happy ending look like? Who decides on the happy ending? Yeah. Is the happy ending the same for the client as what it is for the social worker? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which, and let alone the organisation or the manager that the social worker works under, right? Everyone's got their different KPIs. So I, I really think that was such an interesting space for that social worker to sit in, really reflecting if this is a happy ending for the client, what does that mean for me as the practitioner? What does it mean for the greater context in which I'm seeing this person in? Mm. But is a happy ending a finite state is it a it's not static right no. like I, I went right back to those times when be working with a client and feel like we're making real progress here and really things are flowing well things are improving and then come the next time yeah you're you back see at the client one exactly yeah so it's it's and I think we've said a few times it is I know as a social worker I try and hold on to what I perceive as the gains. But what this social work has done for me in that question is, but it might not necessarily be what the client has imagined as the happy ending. Like in Louise's case, to actually return home separated from her partner mm. was not a happy event for her. But also, Liz, I think the word ending is wrong. Because actually, you know, we talk quite a lot about um, that we have this privilege of a window into a person, another person's life and world, right? Um, why do we think the end of our intervention is an ending? You know, it really isn't. Not in that person's life. In that person's life, they are continuing on. And we may very well, which often happens, re-meet that person at some other point in their journey, depending on the service that you're working with, right? So to know that anything is ever an ending, I don't even think that's possible. I think the social worker linked it to some of the Hollywood, the impact of yeah. Hollywood or the perfect veneer of what a family should look like yes, or what right. therapy should look like. And I think she raises a good point as to you, Mim, like is there ever an ending? And I think you'll hear many therapists say, the door is always open. Oh, completely. And you, I think that's so important, Liz, that people walk away knowing that they can always come back into that therapeutic space and that therapeutic relationship, even if it's just as a quick touch point uh, or a grounding um, that sometimes is needed to then move on to whatever the next stage in their life is, right? Yeah. What I also loved about this social worker's questioning was that point of, is it possible to be too strengths-based? Look, and I think there's a link. Yeah. Happy ending, strength-based approach. Mm. Don't you? Like, yeah. I think they're both worth pondering. But please, go on with well, your... Well, with the strength-based, we... It is sometimes strength-based approaches can be too Hollywood idealised, Right. Sometimes if you, if you are coming from a purely strength-based approach, then actually you can sometimes be blind to some of the other uh, behaviours or experiences or ways of being that the person across from you is experiencing and expressing and actually there's no one else then to call out those moments and to challenge that client in different ways. And 
doing that should not actually clash with a strength-based philosophy. You should still be able to say to someone, these behaviours are having an impact in these ways, whether it's on you as the practitioner, whether it's on other people in this person's life, wherever it is, however it's playing out. I do think it's possible to be too purist in a strength-based framework and therefore tip into that kind of idealised version of what the therapeutic space should hold. I think you're right. I think it has a shadow side. If you're purely going down the strength-based model, yeah. the shadow side is, like you say, you will minimise perhaps some of the behaviours that either need to be called out. Maybe you minimise the experience of, of yeah. domestic violence or or the parenting um, that someone might be applying. And I actually think that is what a lot of people with lived experience in, I'm thinking particularly around issues of disability, mental health, where people say that their ex lived experience was minimised because of the presence of other factors in their life, right? And I think, I, I'm thinking about child protection and drug and alcohol, and I'm thinking there are spaces where it can become a bit grey. And I, I do think this is sort of a bit of a just a watching watch this space kind of topic when it comes to your own practice and your own reflexivity, that actually are you, are you veering towards one of these Hollywood spaces, purist perspectives, or are you actually holistically really appraising a person's entirety in their experience? Mm. Some really good points, Mim. And I think I'd be really curious to have asked... Louise, what a happy ending would look like for her. Yeah. So again, perhaps one of those questions that's worth considering in relation to even at your assessment phase, you know, what would a happy ending look like for you in terms of our working together? Well, that's almost that miracle question, isn't it? Mm. You know, if this was all resolved, what would life look like and how do we work then towards that? And I love, Liz, how you've brought that back to that bringing it back to the client and making actually making that point of insight uh, be a therapeutic tool in and of itself, that it doesn't have to just remain in the supervision space and in the reflexive space, that actually it can be a part of the dialogue in the moment. I really love that point you made. That's beautiful. Um, the other point that I thought was really interesting was that despite... Louise's happy ending maybe being that our family unit remained intact. She raised that really interesting point about the early intervention program prevents certain things from happening. Mm. So here's an experienced social worker who, who can fast forward what life could have looked like in, an, in, another, para, in another parallel universe mm. if early intervention weren't involved if the if Louise wasn't as proactive in relation to removing herself, because this social worker has probably worked with families before where the domestic violence has escalated. Of course. Children have been removed for their safety. Um, women have been brutalised. And so in some regards, Louise doesn't have some of that information that this social worker has. So her happy ending is going to look different to this social workers just mm. because this social worker has yeah again a different idea of what the potential was in relation to Louise's story but it's also that point isn't it about what is the social worker bringing into the space mm. with them 
what's the baggage, what's the professional baggage you bring in? And being able to identify that and put that in your analysis of the situation, being able to put your professional baggage there alongside whatever is occurring as well. It's part of that critically reflective cycle that's so important. Yeah, that's a form of knowledge you're bringing into the space as well. Because the supervisor probably would have said, okay, okay, yeah. here's Louise's happy ending, but tell me a little bit about what you think might have happened if that happy ending had have occurred. You could hear the conversation yes. going on in the supervision conversation, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I actually really love how this social worker has really stepped us through what a reflective cycle could look like. Totally. So if a social work student's listening, but also for practitioners, when you think about a reflective cycle, if you think about Gibbs or Fuchs or any of the reflective cycles that we use in practice, right, and in supervision, it almost steps through in this story because you can pinpoint those questions that come up at the different points around the cycle that lead you to that really key stage of emancipatory change, right, like that different form of practice uh, I really, I really loved this, actually. And I wonder whether the social worker who shared her story with us knew that she was going to take us into this space, because it certainly is a great example of early intervention work, mm. but it's also a great example of reflecting on practice yep. and those questions that are so important for us to continue to ask ourselves in, on, after practice, right? Couldn't say it better myself. So I want to thank this practitioner for this story, our anonymous social worker. It really has left me with a number of thoughts, Liz. Yeah. I can imagine there might be a few people that want to share some of their thoughts with us, Mim. Yeah, yeah, reach out, everyone. Reach out. If you are working in a similar service and you're doing targeted early intervention, we'd really be keen to hear what that work is like and whether you've had stories that actually ring true or reflective moments that sit with you in a similar way. I really appreciated all the comments that have been coming through, Liz, lately, and uh, it always leads us into that next level of conversation, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. So thanks, everyone. Uh, have a good couple of weeks. You too. Yeah, and um, be back on the airwaves soon. Look forward to it. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Social Work Stories podcast. All of the stories we share are de-identified to respect and protect the people involved. We create this podcast because we're passionate about building the global social work community and strengthening our practice, no matter the context. If you want to help us grow the podcast tribe and continue the work we do, we would love it if you can subscribe or follow the podcast in your favorite podcast app. That way you'll be sure to get every episode as soon as it's released. While you're in your podcast app, if you can leave us a five-star rating and write a review, it would mean so much to us. You can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where you can share our posts with your friends to help spread the word. And you can always find us at our home on the web, socialworkstories.com. The Social Work Stories podcast is made by Liz Murphy, Dr. Mim Fox, Justin Stesch, Dr. Ben Joseph, and Maddie Stratton. Thanks so much for listening.